1975, the um, Holocaust survivor um, and chemist and writer, um, Primo Levi, published uh, a book of essays uh, and short stories entitled The Periodic Table. Since his uh, wartime internment in Auschwitz where almost everyone who had been placed there had died, Levy's life was actually dominated by the need to analyse and explain how apparently normal human beings, frankly, could be induced to commit such monumentally inhuman acts such as uh, occurred in the Nazi death camps. And in his book, um, Periodic Table, he wrote one short essay entitled uh, Potassium, actually. Each essay had an element's name to it. About how, as a chemist, he had tried mistakenly to purify benzene with some potassium instead of sodium. Um, uh, the potassium nearly caused a fire which burned down the building, whereas if he'd used sodium it would have been totally safe. But uh, he uh, had reason to himself, sodium and potassium are almost the same. They belong to the same uh, uh, group in the periodic table. Indeed, they're right next to each other in the periodic table. Surely substituting one for the other couldn't cause trouble, but it did. Levy then wrote, one must distrust the almost the same, the practically identical, the approximate. The differences can be small, but they can lead to radically different consequences, like a railroad's switch point the chemist's trade consists in good part in being aware of these differences, knowing them close up and foreseeing their effects. And not only the chemist's trade. In that last sentence, of course, Levy is harking back to this lifelong obsession of his that actually small differences between human beings, which in, in certain circumstances can make all the difference. The difference between being a guard and a prisoner or the difference between being a freedom fighter or a monster, the difference even between death and life. He'd seen it all in Auschwitz. Like potassium and sodium, small differences can have vastly different consequences. Like the points on a railway, small differences can lead us in completely different directions. And he knew from bitter experience that if we have not understood that, we have not understood the human condition. And Jesus concurred with that, absolutely, didn't he? He told a story once about sheep and goats to make exactly that point. In the Middle East, sheep and goats look almost uh, the same. But Jesus warned 
that on the last day he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. According to the Bible, actually, people are like switches. They are either on or off and in God's eyes there are no dimmer switches. Being right with God is like marriage. You either are married or you aren't. You can't be half married. The way to heaven is not a road that everyone uh, walks along at their own speed. It is a railway line in which there are trains to catch or miss and there is a last train. Now, small differences can have massively different consequences. It doesn't seem like that. It seems like the world is full of shades of grey, fluid relationships, degrees of goodness, infinite time, tiny variations. But I think Primo Levi spotted something extremely important through his hard lessons he had learned about human nature. Small differences can, in certain circumstances, have massive consequences. Jesus explained very clearly after he had, he had spoken about the separation of those sheep and goats that uh, God will say, um, that, that he would say, come you who are blessed by my father to the sheep, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But to the almost identical goats he will say, depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I cannot emphasise too strongly how important this is. We've seen how Isaiah, throughout his prophecy, has been speaking in the most glorious terms about the salvation and forgiveness that God offers if you've been here, uh, you'll, know, you'll be familiar now that uh, I've said chapters 1 to 39 focus on Jesus as the, the great king who will rule over all people. In fact, they will one day rule over the whole world and will have people from every tribe and nation serving him. Chapters 40 to 55 describe Jesus as the suffering servant who would die for the sins of people from every tribe and nation, of, um, for his people. But everywhere, from beginning to end, in the prophecy of Isaiah, is the possibility that some will reject that. Some will reject him as king. Some will reject the offer of forgiveness that he has bought at the cost of his life. They will worship, they will prepare to worship their, their, their own gods, live life their own way, they will ignore God. Isaiah then portrays very, very clearly the reality of the division that God expects to happen in this world. And it never ceases to be a reality in Isaiah's prophecy. Chapters 56 to 66, those groups are still there as Margaret um, uh, read that. I hope you saw that. Those two destinies are still there. God is patient, but God will bring people to two different destinations. 
chapter 65 verse 13, My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. And that division goes right to the last verse of Isaiah's prophecy. 66 um, verse uh, 24 is shocking. They will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched. They will be loathsome to all mankind. And uh, that doesn't cease in the rest of Scripture. Jesus quoted exactly that verse to describe the eternal destiny of some. And even right up to the end, in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, you find Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Still there is the division. It would be lovely to think that the Bible describes everything being alright in the end for absolutely everyone. But from beginning to the end, the Bible insists that is not so. And those who've seen the dark side of human nature, like Primo Levi, are often the most acute people at warning us that that is not so. Small differences can lead to vastly different consequences. Beware almost the same, says Levy. See, uh, Isaiah portrays those two groups of people sometimes in vivid terms, but uh, often portrays a surprising divide. Religious people are amongst those who will be on the wrong side of the divide. Notorious sinners or excluded groups like eunuchs or the the, uh, far distant nations will be on the right side of the divide. Here in um, Isaiah um, chapter 66, uh, Isaiah makes it clear actually what the basis of the divide will be. It will not be simply the good people on one side and the bad people on the other or the religious people on one side and the irreligious people on, uh, on the other. There will be something else that God looks for in hearts. Verse 2. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. Between those who um, are on one side and those who are on the other, there may be little difference. They They may both be as theologically correct. They may, be, may have lives that are very similar in terms of the uh, total amount of sin and failure that they've exhibited. They may have attended church a similar amount. But there is a difference in their heart 
a small difference but a vital difference. The one is proud, the other is humble. The one is self-righteous, the other is contrite. The, other is Im- the one is immune to the warnings of God. The other trembles at his word. And that difference deep in the heart of human beings is what makes all the difference. What sets us on one road or another. What defines whether we are married to Christ or actually separated from him what defines whether we are on the train or whether it's drawing out of the station and we're not on it. It may look almost the same but the divide is great. A number number of um, you here are young as I get older I find myself saying that more and more often but um, I have noticed over the years that in our 20s in particular there's a lot of sifting that goes on in, uh, in, in this realm I grew up actually on an old fashioned farm where you hand milked a, the, a cow for, for the house and when you hand milk a cow into an ordinary bucket, some, sometimes bits of straw and grass or other things get into that bucket. But it's very simple to remove those uh, contaminants. They float to the top and you just um, take them out. The cream takes time to float to the top. If you want the cream, you have to wait. I've noticed actually in dealing with uh, people it is the same for human beings. What floats to the top instantly is often much too full of contaminants. The cream amongst God's people takes time to float to the top because it's not always easy at the beginning to spot the truly humble heart the truly um, contrite person the one who trembles at God's word it's not easy, uh, always easy to see the pride and the hardness of heart that there is in some but it will show itself in time. I want to say to you who are younger here particularly, be aware of that. Your Christian growth needs to be more than anything else a growth downward. A growth in humility. A a growth in contrition for sin. A growth in a, in a humble, awestruck relationship with God. 
We all know, I think, how easily pride and self-righteousness and immunity to God rises in our hearts and, in, and particularly in the formative years of our, of our Christian life. That can start to become the dominant theme. Small differences early on can actually settle into a very different destination. And I have to say as well, we who are older, it is so easy, isn't it, to give up on that fight, to um, um, be more and more content with uh, this hardness that is starting to creep in. We've been Christians for a few decades now. We know the score. We've heard it all uh, before. Our, Our sins have become familiar to us and no longer trouble us in quite the same way. We've frankly become more and more comfortable with God's word. You know, there are lots and lots of long-term church members too who who approach sermons and Bible readings like a seasoned opening batsman in a test match. You know, they, 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 they look with scorn that raised at the uh, poorly aimed delivery that whizzes harmlessly past. They effortlessly present uh, bat and pad to uh, uh, that sharp inswinger. They drive the occasional full length delivery uh, uh, through the covers to to the boundary and uh, uh, mentally clock up the points that they have scored. They are batting for close of play as they listen to sermons, as they read their Bibles. But it's not a cricket match. Now you see, what's coming towards you is bread for starving souls. If someone tosses a bread roll to you, a starving person doesn't uh, let it go by. They reach for it. They dive to catch it. They hang on to it and they devour it. The word of God is bread for your soul. It is meant to make us tremble. It is meant to make us contrite. It is meant to make us humble. It is meant to make us into people whom God esteems. And if we become practised in batting it away, then we will become prouder and harder and more resilient, resistant to God. And the prospect of that is very terrible. I cannot emphasise that enough. We, we looked at it last week and it is still there in Isaiah 65 and 66. There is a real judgement that God brings and he divides people 
not according to their net weight of good and bad, but according to what is going on in their hearts. But enough of uh, that. That's the basis of the division. We could um, spend more time on the negative results of the division, but I think we've done enough. I want to spend the, the, uh, the rest of our time, the last of our time, looking at this uh, prophecy of Isaiah, looking on the positive side, at the positive results of this division. Scripture does not linger on the negative results. It does linger on the positive results. Verses 17 to 25 of Isaiah 65 set out for us an extraordinary picture of what God has promised for his people. Verse 17 announces God is going to make a new creation. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. This present world is shot through with pain and trouble and death. If you haven't experienced it yet, just live a bit longer and you will. But we know it is also beautiful, extraordinary, wonderful, splendid, glorious. It is the ultimate expression in its positive side of God's creative genius. It is the mirror of his character, sadly at the moment, marred, but still displaying so much of God's goodness and greatness. You want to see how great God is? Look at the sky, or better still, um, perhaps. Go down to the University Museum, climb up to the balcony of the University Museum and you will find there um, on one of the um, uh, parapets a little model of the earth. It's about the size of a pinhead and the, and the moon just next to it. And then look right across the great um, uh, expanse of uh, the uh, um, um, Science Museum, the University Museum, and you will see there a scale replica of the sun. And then, if I remember rightly, I, I, I wish I could have checked this, I think it will then tell you that the next closest star on the same scale wouldn't be in Oxford. That is how awesomely great our universe is. That is how awesomely great God is. Marvel at the God who, who says in his word in Genesis chapter 1, just as an aside, he also made the stars. You want to see how beautiful God is? Marvel at the infinite variety of flowers that we have. You want to see how faithful God is? Think about the never-ending sequence of rising and falling tides. Look at this world and you will see God's goodness displayed. And the promise to God's people is not that we will be saved from this universe at all but that God is going to renew this universe, to recreate it and put us into it. This time without the horrors, without the pain, without the sin, without the death. You know, actually as I've studied my Bible over the last few years and particularly as I've been helped by um, some of the books, for instance, by Bishop Tom uh, uh, Wright, 
I've come to realise that our conventional understanding of what the, what, what the Bible promises uh, for our future is actually much closer to the expectation of the pagans of the first century, not the Christians of the first century. Many pagans believed in some sort of spiritual life after death, some sort of mysterious, attenuated, uh, continued existence, perhaps in another place, perhaps even here. And much of our our conventional Christian language of the 20th and 21st century has been more influenced by that than by the Bible. I mean, this poem is often read at funerals, isn't it? Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the softly falling snow. I am the gentle showers of rain. I am the fields of ripening grain. I am in the birds that sing. I am in each lovely thing. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. It's a beautiful poem in some ways, but the Christian gospel says something far, far greater than that. We are not looking forward to some continued spiritual existence in the wind and the rain and the snow and the flowers. No, we are promised a bodily resurrection in a new universe in which we will rise to enjoy a thousand winds and the falling snow and the gentle rain and the ripening grain and the birds that sing and the lovely things. We will enjoy them again in a very similar way to how we enjoy them now. Our future is not just spiritual, our future is physical. Our future is not in some some sort of mysterious continued life after death. Our future is ultimately, actually, at the end of time, in bodily resurrection and the creation, as Isaiah says here, of new heavens and a new earth. For now we must wait. But the future is far, far greater than so often we think. The new creation will be different in certain key ways. As uh, we saw when we read Isaiah 11 right at the beginning of our service. It will be different crucially because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But it will be physical. It will be solid. Isaiah actually hasn't seen yet in his prophecy, the full dimensions of this future new creation. But he's seen enough to get massively excited. He knows it will be overwhelmingly joyful. Verse 18, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a light, a delight, and its people a joy. He knows that this will be a a future not only characterised by joy, but characterised by extraordinary life where there is no premature death. Never again, verse 20, will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. 
he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Isaiah's saying, you know, a century will seem like a short life then. He hasn't seen what the New Testament declares for us, that actually this resurrection life will consist in the destruction of death itself. We will rise never to die, just as Jesus did. Says the New Testament. Isaiah foresees as well that this future time will be a time of physical security and wonderful plenty. Verse 21, they will build houses and dwell in them, they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. You know, we have to ask, is eating grapes and dwelling in houses just a metaphor here? Well, I have to say, everything we know about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which is set forward by the New Testament as the basis of our hope, everything we know about the bodily resurrection of Jesus suggests that it's not perhaps as metaphorical as you might think. Jesus had a human body. Jesus loved to sit down and cook fish and eat it with his disciples. Jesus promised on the last supper that we'll be celebrating in a little while that he's going to drink wine with them on the final great feast. Maybe they thought that was metaphorical and still he rose from the dead and fed them some baked fish by the side of the Sea of Galilee. No, I think the New Testament is saying you like this life? You like its beauty? You like its physical pleasures? You'll love that life. It will be all the physicality of this present existence shorn of its pain, shorn of its sin, shorn of death itself. It will have new and almost unimaginable dimensions to it. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. But note there are wolves and lambs and lions. More than anything else, in this new creation, this new heavens and new earth, we will enjoy the intimate, unbroken presence of God. Isaiah uh, uh, 65 verse 24, Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. Who of us here has not known the pain of prayer that just seems not to be answered, that just seems to meet with blankness, that we have to repeat again and again and again over long periods. That will be gone. Before I call, they call, I will answer. Before they finish the sentence, they will get my answer. Because I will be with them.
in ways that they have not experienced in this world. So from the bottom of my heart, as we get to the end of Isaiah, I want to say, do not miss out on this. If you're just looking at Christianity at the moment, then I hope that Isaiah has given you some sense of the glory and the majesty of what God has to offer. You are offered almost unimaginable, wonderful, physical, bodily, resurrected life in a renewed universe with all the beauty of our present existence made perfect. Don't miss out on it. Don't mistake what will qualify you for it. It is not a certain badge of righteousness. It is not a certain tally of church attendance. It is not a certain level of understanding. It is something that God needs to do in your heart to create humility and contrition and a sense of fearful awe at his word. A humble heart that asks Christ for forgiveness. A sensitive spirit that trembles. God does that in your heart. And you can bow your head this morning and say, please Christ forgive me. Please help me to respond to your word. Please help me to follow you. Then you can be assured of this. Of this great promise. But I want to say to you, for whom perhaps this is much more familiar, I want to say to you as well, the test is still not your righteousness, still not your Bible knowledge, still not your church attendance, still not your reputation with the people around you. The test is still, am I humble in heart? Am I contrite? Do I tremble at God's word? The stakes are absolutely enormous. The stakes are everything. The Bible from beginning to end says that. And from beginning to end, it says that it's the humble and lowly who may look almost the same as the proud and self-righteous. But it is the humble and lowly who find their way into that new creation. If God has done that in your heart, then treasure it, cultivate it, let it grow and 
rejoice in the things that Isaiah has already said. Isaiah 60, remember, God has promised to shine his light into your heart. Isaiah 61, Jesus promises to bind up those humble and contrite and broken-hearted people. Isaiah 62, God says, for your sake I will not be silent, I will not be stopped. All of those promises are yours. If God has begun a work in your heart, he will complete it. If he has done that, you too can rejoice. Just as Isaiah says, be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem, my people, to be a delight. It's people a joy. Rejoice this morning if he's done that in your heart. And if he hasn't done it in your heart yet, seek it with the urgency that is appropriate. Your life depends on it. Never, ever give up until God comes and you are a new person.